Hi guys, I hope you're doing well. I have some very exciting news. Black Prose is going to be on stage at the London Podcast Festival on the 15th of September and I'll be in conversation with Dorothy Coombson, who is the author of 18 novels and has been in the publishing industry for the last 20 years, which is incredible. I'll be sure to leave more information in our description and I hope to see you there. Outer space, inner space, new worlds, tech frontiers, artificial intelligence, the best of science fiction takes us to places beyond our own imagination. It encourages us to dream up impossible futures that inevitably go on to shape our own technological advances. I'm your host, Yolande Falhidmi, a journalist who advocates for innovation and storytelling, and this is Black Prose, the podcast where black writers talk amongst themselves. You've probably been living under a rock if you haven't come across Kelechi Okafor. You may have read her words or heard her speak, but this actress, orator and writer is truly multi-talented. I've actually interviewed Kelechi before, but since then, the Say Your Mind podcast host has continued her quest for a fairer and more beautiful world, including writing her debut sci-fi short story collection called Edge of Here, Stories from Near to Now. And I cannot wait to talk all about it with the baby girl and the voice behind Sally in HR. You seem very mission-driven. Okay, yeah. So I wanted to know, what is your mission in life? Oh, my mission in life is to find my optimal timeline and to embody that. <laughs> I just started. <laughs> okay, okay. So what do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is that I feel like, you know, like everyone loves like the Marvel universe and they talk about these multiverses and things like that. And all of us are part of our own multiverse where there are numerous um, kind of decisions and options that we might have chosen over time that will lead us down a particular path. I think that I want to choose, I want to find myself continuing on the best path for me. And by doing that, I think that it always requires service in some way. I don't think you can live this life without being of service to the people in one way or another. And, you know, currently it's making my videos and making people aware of like the things that are happening through social commentary. The book, you know, Edge of Here is an extension of that as well, making people aware of what is or where we are at the sense, you know, in, in the sense of we're at the edge of here. And making people aware of that before it becomes the center of here and then we've got an issue. So I think that in terms of my mission, it's probably to be a way shower. You know, some people are the ones that kind of do the work once you've pointed out the way. I just think I'm meant to signpost and show people where things are and hope that they wake up in time to see it. So where did the title of your book come from? For me, I feel like I channeled the stories and I do believe that I channeled the title. It wasn't something that I was consciously thinking about. I didn't sit down and brainstorm like, what should the title be? The moment I knew I was going to write a short story collection and I knew what the first story was because it was part of another anthology, um, that was Who's Loving You? And I wrote The Watchers for that. I knew that this was going to be called Edge of Here because I feel like, especially as black women, as black people, but specifically as black women or um, femme identifying people, we exist in the liminalities of life, right? We exist in between stages, not quite this, not quite that, even though we boss it at everything that we do put our minds to what society wants to um, have us do is not quite be something. And so I remember going to a lecture 
years ago and this uh, black feminist um, lecturer, she was talking about things and she talked about the liminalities of black womanhood or black womanhood existing as a liminality. And that's when I started to realise that we are, we are on the fringes, we are on the edge of here. We, we sometimes, we find ourselves being observers to things and usually it's our things like we create something we originate something and we watch it go into the mainstream go into the center yet we remain marginalized we remain on the outskirts so I really wanted to kind of write something that talks about what I see from the edge of here and what is likely to head over that way yeah I definitely got that from all the stories I think I've been trying to think which one's my favorite oi oi (laughs) I think it's either Uterus Star and the Ally Chip. Ooh! Because I think, how on earth did you think of those stories? Like, what? (laughs) what, Like, how? Yeah, like, how did you think of those stories? Because I know, like, with writing, our imaginations are very wild and can go in the wildest of places. But I feel like you went to the edge of your imagination. Yeah, really pushing it. Like, if I go beyond this point, somebody will come and look for me. (laughs) Yeah, like, where did those stories come from? I'm trying to guess the same as you. Honestly, to me, I just think that for me, I never considered myself to be a writer. So if 2016, somebody would have asked me, oh, what do you do? I act, I direct and I have a pole dance studio. Oh, but you're so good at like tweeting and like sharing your social commentary. So surely you're a writer. I'm like, no, I'm not a writer. I just do this. So it's like somebody had to come and show me that I am a writer, that all of the extensive tweeting and all of those things that I've been doing and writing articles over the years, those were kind of, I guess destiny helpers who were showing me, calling me to my own mission, calling me to my own destiny. Because I think that oftentimes we don't know our own mission. We don't know our destinies. And that's why we need destiny helpers who unconsciously or consciously, they see something in us that we don't see. And they're like, hey girl, have you tried doing this? And they don't know why they're telling you to do it. But because they do, you end up um, achieving something, a part of your assignment that maybe otherwise you wouldn't have. So when it came to the writing process, I'm very much a a believer in like consulting with my ancestors and really taking that time to build a relationship um, because I think that it's just important. There is so much to this life that we don't see with our uh, naked eye or our physical eyes. And it's important to look beyond the physical eyes to see what um, the expanse of life. That's when I think you really start living when you start to look beyond the physical and so every time I would sit down to write, I'd say, you know, ancestors who were particularly gifted at writing, the storytellers that would gather everybody around, that would tell captivating stories, help me, like, help me, I need to write this story. And I'll just leave it as that. And then I'll start typing. So I know that other people have this kind of framework where it's beat by beat that they write and they brainstorm and they structure. No, I just sat at the laptop and just started writing. So, but there have been things that would spur it. So Roe v. Wade, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, that was the night that I wrote Uterus Star. Because I saw that and I was like, why are they trying to legislate like on our wombs? Like what would happen if, (gasps) and then, then those questions. Yes. I think sometimes those are where the best ideas come from. Asking those questions are a bit... Yeah, because it's like, what would happen? Like, let's be serious. And literally a few months ago, I saw that um, some uh, Swedish researcher or somebody, she was talking about why don't we use um, women who are comatose um, as surrogates because they were like, oh, right. I saw that. Yeah. I saw that. And and I was like, but see, I wrote uterus, and here you are 
uterus story. <laughs> Do you get what I mean? Like, yeah. here, here you are. Um, and I knew, well, it was, I didn't know. Speaking with my editor, Sarita Domingo, who's wonderful, she had asked me, okay, what links the stories? Because the thing is, short story collections are very, very difficult to put out um, on the market. So what links these stories? And initially I was like, well, they're just separate stories and people might know each other, kind of, but they're separate stories. But then I understood that there needed to be something cohesive about them. So then that's how the universe formed, where the allyship then graduates into being yeah. something that we then see in the uterus star and then councilwoman. It links in that way. And the allyship, again, 2020, Everyone post, posting their black squares, the black square summer of 2020, doing all this performative allyship. And then there was this part of 2020 where white people started saying, oh, I'm suffering from allyship fatigue. I just, you know, it's so hard seeing all this racism, seeing all this trauma all of the time. I said, baby, you did it for five weeks. You did it for five weeks. And here you are on the ground, on your knees, like struggling, <laughs> crying, screaming out. So what do you think it feels like for somebody to do this their whole life? <gasps> then that brought it about, like, what if there was a chip that would allow for them to feel what it feels like yeah. all of the time? And as the story plays out, they also get ally chip fatigue from that as well. There's actually also another crossover that I spotted. I was like, ooh, that... I'm going to try and find the name. <laughs> it was it? Sally in HR. Yeah, in Uterus Star. Yeah, yeah, I was like, wait, I've seen, I've seen this institution before plant acorn yeah, yeah 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 and i was like where have i seen this before and i was like so then i went onto instagram then i clicked on sally in hr then i see hr in i was like oh. yeah so i was like wow she even managed to bring sally into this somehow you know because even when i named um the company that sally worked at very few people clocked that it was plantation so plant acorn was <laughs> so i needed to use her i needed to use that company in all of this because... Oh my gosh, I didn't realise that. Yeah. But it's so true actually because I've never really thought about how hard it is to do short story collections and how... Because normally I see them as separate stories mm -hmm. but I felt like there was a lot of links yes. to these stories yeah. and I can also see elements of yourself, all the things that yeah. you've spoken about in the past yes. like fed in yeah. very subtly yeah. as well. So I really enjoyed that. Yay! <laughs> Without like beating people over the head with it, I think that's the thing with social commentary I speak directly to the camera, you know, I bring out my phone and I say this and I say that, then I go on the news and I'm saying the same thing over and over again. There are certain people who, the moment they see me with that running hat on, by Tower Bridge, they say, <laughs> the no, they say, not today, girl. <laughs> I don't care. I, not today. Do not come and tell me anything. But if I sneak it into a romance, sci-fi sort of situation, they're likely to listen. I'll get them one way or another. It's true. It's true. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you, don't, you didn't feel like a writer. Mm -hmm. So when did you start to feel like a writer? I think it's when Chika Unigwe, who is a writer that I greatly admire, she wrote on, on Black Sister Street, if you've never read it, phenomenal. I remember reading that for the first time and saying, one way or another, I'm going to turn this into a stage play or I'm going to turn this into a feature film. It is sick, really heartbreaking. But the humanity with which she writes about, you know, the Nigerian women, the West African women who are basically trafficked to places like Belgium for sex work and things like that. There was something about it that really, really spoke to me about the complexities, the tensions, everything. She's just a phenomenal writer. And um, she's got a new book out called The Middle Daughter. Um, I really rate her. Like there are writers who have passed on, like Toni Morrison, that um, have written in a way that I'm just like, wow, Audrey Lord, like wow. But Chica, 
you know, a living writer who I'm just like, that is phenomenal. When she um, was sent the book, she read it and she sent a quote back and she said, you know, it was refreshingly unexpected that this is what you would write. And the way that she described it, she said, you know, essentially, this is a new way. This is a this is a new path that we haven't thought of before. Like, well done to you. And that meant a lot to me because I thought if the writer I rate rates my writing, I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I get it, I get it, I get it. But hearing that, is it that she, you like her style of writing or you like the story she's told that what really made you feel like, wow, okay, I'm actually a writer? I think she writes humans. You know, sometimes I think that people write concepts, they write ideologies, but not everybody writes humans. And in On Black Sister Street, she writes humans, she writes women, she writes Nigerian women in a way that is so unflinching that it's like, whoa, not like heavily criticizing none of that. It's just really, really great. Um, I feel that way about um, The Secret Lives of Baba Segi's Wives. You know, again, that sort of raw approach to black womanhood, that's something that really sticks with me because sometimes we're deified or we're denigrated. We're either like godlike and it's, oh, get black women women to fix everything. Or it's like black women are the worst and they're so angry. We don't just get to be. We don't just get to be complicated, complex, you know, chaotic, tender, loving, beautiful, soft, like everybody else. We've got to be one of either extreme. So I love that they play in that space of, well, we can be all of the things. You don't have to like every character. For instance, like in The Other Man, it's messy. (laughs) (laughs) Very messy. That's what I'm saying. Like, how did you think of this? I'm fascinated by technology. And I remember looking at the Ancestry DNA things and going, hmm, what would happen if... (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of the stories were inspired by questions that provoke thought. Yeah. That also made you even think about what would happen if this happened, essentially. Yeah. And I think that that's why they had to be short stories because I never want to pretend that I've got the answers. I just want to say, oh, hey, come and meet these characters, come and meet these people. And I guess we'll have to see what comes of it. They are embodiments of questions that are yet to be answered. Don't, I don't know. Something you've spoken about quite a lot is how you feel sometimes misunderstood by people. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like this book is a way for you to almost be like, this is me, yeah. that hello Here world? I am, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Primary school day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes, I really enjoy I um, imagery about Phoenix you know, like the phoenix and death and rebirth. And I think that there are so many things that have happened in my life that have almost felt like deaths in one way or another. And this is a sort of rebirth. And I think when we talk about death and I think about Hades and I think about mythology and how you have to go there to the underworld to get certain things and you have to come back out with what you've received. And if you can make it through the underworld and come back, nobody's really trying you. Nobody can test you at that point. And I think that a lot of my life has been delving into the underworld. And then I was able to bring out this short story collection. I can't, I mean, of course there'll be people, but I can't really see anybody reading it and not understanding me on a deeper level. First of all, people are kind of shocked that it's speculative fiction or sci-fi because, again, what's presented to them or what they uh, choose to uh, take in online is a particular narrative about 
me as a black woman. I think all along I've been showing my interest. I tweeted endlessly about True Blood when it was on. <laughs> I tweeted about so many shows that if you watch the shows that I watch, it's very clear what I'm interested in. So it's very funny what people then hone in on and go, oh, she must be this kind of person. So the real ones would be like, yeah, sci-fi makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Does that get frustrating though? Yes, but it's liberating. I think that one of the greatest gifts that your adversaries can give you is underestimation, like underestimating you, because this is coming. But I even I thought, you know, I would want um, I would write a book initially about anger and it will be the nonfiction yeah. book. But it's funny because how I initially approached my literary agent that I have now, Sally Ann, was that I wanted to write fiction. And she said, mm, well, no, because with fiction, you have to have written the manuscript and then they they bid on it. Only nonfiction can you pre present a proposal and then get an advance on the proposal. And I needed the advance. I needed the financial security to be able to do the things that I'm doing. She told me that that's not usually done. You don't get an advance. You don't get a book deal without having a fully formed fiction manuscript. I said, OK. And then we cut to, what, 2021? And I'm approached to write a fiction with nothing to That's show crazy. yet. I find those experiences so humbling. Yes. How did that make you feel? I think if you have um, a spiritual practice and you're faith-based as a person, you can tell me the rules that you know. But my God doesn't work with the rules that you know, that any of us know. And I have to even remind myself of that sometimes, that there was a reason that I thought fiction, fiction. So even when I was trying to, even when people were trying to move me off that path, like, no, do nonfiction first, get that established, and then you can write your fiction. Now I'm looking at it and it's like, no, I actually wouldn't have wanted to come out with nonfiction first because that would have locked me into that angry black woman narrative I did want to write about anger and how anger is a liberating force or energy for black women but I now think that I can write about that later on once I've established the thing that I care about I think that's important yeah that makes sense so when Daniel Dash like slid into your DMs on Twitter <laughs> and told you stop writing for free you can actually make money with your words what point were you in your writing career were you still at the place where you thought you weren't a writer mm -hmm. oh, yes okay. definitely that point, that must have been around 2016. Danielle, uh, she, she I randomly, I think I was writing a thread about something. And she was like, hey, girl, stop writing for free. Stop. You're giving these people ideas. And I know, she's like, I know firsthand people are literally taking what you've written and they're pitching it and they're the ones writing articles. And it shouldn't be that way. You've written a thread that basically um, amounts to an article. I can introduce you to people, go and write for them instead. And she she was true to her word. The next time something came round her way, she was like, I think Kalechi should write it instead. And that just kind of spurred everything on. And I've been writing like little articles ever since. One theme for the book is about contemporary black womanhood mm -hmm. and looking at how if things were different for us as black women, what would it look like? Mm -hmm. And then you've also spoken about not allowing these stories to be about trauma mm -hmm. and sad things. It's a lot of romance, a lot yes. of weirdness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what made you want to go from that angle in the approach of your writing and the stories that you're telling? I feel like it's the only angle I do know. I think that 
people who en- who engage with my podcast or who en- um, engage with my social commentary on social media and stuff can see that I don't tend to speak in a very linear way. I use a lot of imagery. I use a lot of, you know, humor. I use a lot of abstract concepts that they might not consider would be kind of um, complementary to what's been spoken about in that space. Uh, there was one time I was barling about people crying over um, Elizabeth's death. And I said, you know, I mentioned something about astrology and so many people said I was not expecting astrology to suddenly pop up in what you were saying because what you're saying is very political. But astrology is also, you know, politics is also part of astrology. Even the fact that people don't rate it, that's political, you know. So everything links with each other. And I feel like imagination is something that we're robbed of daily. The chance to use our imagination, we're robbed of it because if we imagine a different world, then we're going to want that world. And we're being, we've been socialized to believe that this is the only world that we can have. So through these stories, I want to celebrate black women, but also invite them to delve deeper into their imaginations of what is possible because then they'll demand what is possible, even if they can't currently see it in their immediate environment. Mm. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. This is a random question. Mm-hmm. If you could choose, who would you say should have the allyship implanted into them? Uh, Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why? The comments that he's made about non-white people over the years, the way he just kind of puts on this act of the bumbling fool, I just want him to feel the effects of this big performance that he's putting on. I want him to really, really feel it because so many people are vexed with him over lockdown and how he was living his best life and everybody else was suffering. There were ways in which we could have kept ourselves safe, but still had the opportunities to interact with loved ones, which he denied people, but he was still out here flinging himself about. So I think that it would be great if he had it. Could you also explain to listeners what the allyship is? Yes. So the allyship there are actually two chips. One would go into the brain of somebody, let's say a black person who experiences racism, and the other chip would go into the brain of a white person. So it would go around the amygdala. And the purpose of this is that when a black person experiences a form of racism, it's the white person that would feel it um, firsthand. They need to be within a certain range um, next to each other in terms of distance for them to feel it. And um, William Bunker, who's the billionaire who funds this, the ship is originally created by Tomiwa Folonshaw, um, a 15-year-old. She came up with it at the time in Nigeria, and then he bought the rights to it and then just took it to do whatever he wanted to do with it. So ideally, the chip was meant to stop racism. And then? And then, well, <laughs> well, <laughs> Katarina <laughs> was not saved. <laughs> Was it intentional to use Nigerian names? Because there was two names that you used in um, the watches. Chinonso and Indidi. And yes. when I Googled what they mean, yeah. is God is near and yes. patience. Yes. Was, was, All the was, names are intentional. Okay. Because God is always near. The, the watches are there. The watches are, um, you know, kind of God's people, you know. Um, so the, the God is near. And patience, because in every lifetime they do this. And so many people write into my podcast when I do the tarot section, they say, when am I going to meet my person? You know, when am I going to meet my soulmate? And I'm just like, you just have to be patient. And soulmates come in so many forms. But if you're talking about a romantic form, sometimes patience is very, very necessary. And also taking a risk. 
you're not if you decide that you just want to stay in South London Wait. all the time, but 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 the soulmate is somewhere somewhere else, random mm-hmm. in Guatemala. How are you go, like, fam? Get outside of South London. <laughs> well, I feel like you're like really dragging people like. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. Noted, noted, noted. Um, have you ever felt like giving up in terms of your writing? Every day. <laughs> no, like, I don't know so much with writing because I don't think I put so much on it, you know? To me, it's still very cute. Like, oh, really? <laughs> the girls want to read this? <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't really feel that way because I realise that actually this is a fantastic vehicle for being able to share so many different ideas with people. And I think about just how much books have uh, transformed my life, being able to go into a random world and be there until that book finishes and to think about it years after you've read it is such an intimate thing that I wouldn't want to give up on that intimacy. I probably have to find different ways to utilise it. But I think I'd always want to... I have been writing forever. I think I'd always want to write. Has it always been fiction or has it been... Like, what sort of writing were you doing before? Like behind closed doors? Probably fiction. Fiction and poetry. Really enjoy. I love poetry. I love breaking down poetry. Um, Maybe that's why I was so drawn to directing because acting is wonderful. You make choices as an actor and you say, oh yeah, I'm going to play this character this way. But as a director, you get to share with people, offer to them what you've kind of um, taken out from the subtext that they might not have noted and how you can convey that on stage or, you know, with the energy that they create. So I love directing it in that manner. So I've always been a lover of words. When I was at university, I studied drama and theatre studies with law. My dissertation when I was in third year was about how blackness is represented in Shakespearean theatre or Jacobian text. Christopher Marlowe's, one of Christopher Marlowe's plays, I took it and kind of wrangled it around and made it something else so I've always been interested in taking what we know and making it something that we don't know and outside of your writing career have you felt like giving up yes many times I will call my mom and just be bawling and she'll be like it is well they love those three (laughs) words they love those three words you can tell them the rice is burnt it is well (laughs) you can tell them London Bridge is falling down it is well but you know what It is well. Actually, when you think about it, some of the most wise things and some of the things that comfort us the most, they don't have to be complicated. It is well is literally it. And when I went to Peru to take part in these ayahuasca ceremonies... Could you explain what that is for people who don't know? (laughs) Right. So um, ayahuasca is a vine and it's um, taken and brewed with a couple of other vines and leaves um, into a tea that's considered like plant medicine, and it helps you to hallucinate. You throw up a lot and you might poo. Um, But it helps you to hallucinate, and what is said is that it helps you to, you know, kind of see past this physical veil that we speak about and to access certain other realms in whether it's your brain, whether it's in your memories that you've put away, your soul, whatever the case may be. It kind of introduces you to yourself in case you don't know, you know, if you haven't met yourself yet. So I decided that I wanted to go to Peru to experience what this is like. Flew out to Peru, was there for 10 days. The ayahuasca retreat is seven days. In those seven days, you do the ceremonies four times. Usually people do ayahuasca once. We did it four times. And it was one of the best things I've ever done. Like, it was rigorous, but I'm so glad 
that I did do it because it, it, again, it just opens you up to a new way of seeing yourself and seeing life. And I bring that up because one of the visions that I had while under the influence of ayahuasca was having to address my great fear of loss and losing people and things. And, you know, I remember hearing everybody returns home in the end. And then it made me understand it is well that at the end of the day, however many tries it takes anybody in this life, we are all returning back to source in one way or another. So that kind of gives me comfort. So when I start fretting about things and wanting to give up, it's like everyone makes it home in the end. It's fine. It's fine. When you did go on, the, is it, would you call it a retreat? Yeah. Did you have any expectations for what would ha happen on the other side or what you wanted to get out of it? Or were you just going... Like just very open-hearted. Yeah, very open because, I mean, I've seen some things already. So all I kept saying was like, don't show me no snakes. I do not want to see a single snake in my hallucinations because no. And thankfully I didn't. <laughs> but um, that was my only thing. But I'm very open spiritually anyway. I'm, I love learning about different religions and cultures. I'm not somebody that's like, my way is the only way. I, I like learning about what people have to say because, again, everybody returns home in the end, whichever path anybody's choosing hopefully we all still make it home, you know? So I went there very open and my main intention was that I want to learn about unconditional love. I want to learn what it's like to show oneself unconditional love and to practice unconditional love in society. So, I mean, I might still call um, Suella <laughs> and people like that some names. Yeah, but... you've, been, you've been tagging them. <laughs> you've been tagging them. Like, consistently, you'll be tagging. We're doing loads of question marks as well. Like... <laughs> as, if, as if I'm confused as to why they're not responding. <laughs> yeah, like, like, hello, I'm tagging you. I'm, I'm speaking to you. <laughs> like, they should come and listen to me. <laughs> You never know. One day, oh, no, they see it. <laughs> they, that's the thing. They, they probably it. do see it, but see it. I'm told, like, girl, <laughs> stop. <laughs> but um, yeah, even with that being said, I feel that since coming back, I do move with a more authentic confidence. I think that sometimes you play at the confidence, but now I feel a, an authentic confidence that this is what I'm here to do, and everybody's going to get this work. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. How do you actually move in authentic confidence? Because I think that's... There's confidence and there's mm. authentic confidence because you can learn to be confident. Because mm -hmm. you know people say fake it till you make yes, it. Yes, exactly. So you're learning to be confident, but it might not be genuine. So how have you learned to be authentically confident? Again, it comes back to this retreat and other work that I've done previously. There's a very fantastic uh, healer called Laurence Sessu. And I was doing some inner child work with her, some womb healing work with her. She's phenomenal. Uh, she's based in South London. And those things prior to going to Peru really, really helped to connect me back to my inner child because when you have that connection, all parts of you aligned, that is your authentic confidence because you're not leaving anybody behind. You're not treating any part of yourself with anything 
less than compassion. And I think previously there would be things that I'd be like, oh, I don't really want to think about that aspect of things or my past. I don't really care. I don't want to focus on those things. But actually to move an authentic confidence, you have to look at every iteration of yourself that you've put out past, present, all of that stuff, and love every single part, even the parts that you would have done differently, love every single part and take them forward with you. That way nobody can, because the only thing that we're scared of when it comes to whether we're performing confidence or otherwise is shame. We're scared of being shamed. We're scared of being humiliated. But what would you have to humiliate me with if I've taken everything and called everything home to me? You know, so that's the authentic confidence that there's nothing I feel that anybody can say now that be like, oh, my God, oh, my God, you hurt me. So what would you say, if you don't mind sharing, mm-hmm. what would you say is something that you were quite ashamed of before that you feel like now you've not forgiven yourself, maybe forgiven others for that's allowed you to become more of who you've been called to be? I think it probably would be as funny, funny as it sounds, it would be my very direct manner of speaking. You know, I've tried, I've tried everybody's like different ways of, you know, toning it down, doing this. And it's like, no, I just want to say it how it is, not be rude to anybody. Well, sometimes rude, but (laughs) not be rude to anybody, but just say the thing exactly as it is. And owning that this is my manner of delivery is so liberating. Everybody else can do what they want to do. This is how I'm going to deliver it. And if you know what I'm about, you know my brand, you know that the moment I open my mouth, something's about to happen, then we're all fine, you know? And there have been times when I've been told, oh, you haven't been invited onto this morning show or that morning show because they're worried about what you would say and you're like a loose cannon. I'm like, I'm not really a loose cannon. I've been on numerous other shows and I haven't acted up. So why would I? So maybe do I need to tone it down? Do I need to do this? And just owning that, no, actually I don't. You be over there and I'll be over here and I'll deliver the news my way. (laughs) <laughs> sorry I think I just remember because when you were speaking that I can't remember what news program it was but I think it was of a guy and who was a presenter and he basically asked you a question it was about racism yeah. and he basically said to you oh is it racist if I'm in a room oh. and I don't look at you oh. but I look at the other like white people in the room and you're the only black person is that racism and I was really confused. I was even shocked that that came out he of his mouth. Because you're meant to be the presenter. And he's actually meant to be more uh, one of the more liberal ones on that network. He didn't even seem to catch himself. He just continued. No, he just said it. And I'm like, well, if you didn't see me, but you greeted everybody else, you need to ask yourself why you didn't see me. Oh, no, but I greeted the black guys and I greeted... Okay, so you greeted the black guys, but you didn't greet me as a black woman. You see how you're telling on yourself all of the yeah, time in this conversation? Like, it's so but I like when people just tell on themselves, like, let them. So we actually know who <laughs> you know, really are. Yes, and then we can address that. Because sometimes I don't even necessarily believe that it's about, you know, verbal flogging. Let me know what you are thinking so I can show you the holes and the flaws in your thinking. So when I gave it back to him and I said, well, why wouldn't you have seen me if you saw everybody else? It kind of threw him because he hadn't considered that. Because again, this is how racism in our psyches go unchecked. And so it's important to point out to somebody there's an issue with that because the same way you don't see them in the room, it's probably how you don't see them in the rest of society. That's so true. That's so true. I've actually experienced that whole thing where you're in a room and you get skipped. Mm-hmm. And I'm the only black person, yeah. but you skipped me. Mm-hmm. And when I then say, oh, you skipped me, everyone's like all flustered and like, oh, so sorry, but how did you not 
and then it's awkward and then you're seen as the bad guy I went to uh, I went to the theatre the other night I was queuing to get a drink and there was a black woman in front of me and I was behind her and the white server was serving the black woman and then two white women just rocked up they didn't sit with the they didn't stay with the queue they just went and formed their own little thing on the side so when the black woman moves from the front of me he automatically goes to them to go and serve them and I said hey 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 I'm next. He said, no, because that I said, uh-uh, are you, <laughs> are you, are you okay? right? Me that was here that they just, don't, do you want us to go and put up, pull up camera images? Are you, and the women, the women were like, well, I'm so sorry. Didn't realise I'm so, but again, how did you lot not see that there were people queuing here? You just went and did your own thing. But he, he's the issue because he knew that there was a queue. So what was he doing? And then he gave me my drink begrudgingly to put it down and wandered off. I said, me, <laughs> what you don't know about me is just like these other white women. I love speaking to the manager. Bring the manager out immediately. Bring that manager out now. And I told the manager what happened. He's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. sorry. When it comes to the intermission, any drink you want, anything you want, let <laughs> us know. We've reserved this table for you. You Aww. know, we're so sorry. This shouldn't happen. Da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> sometimes we're too shy to complain about the ways that we've been treated and I was like no I'm gonna move with Sally's energy I want my things and I want my things immediately and if I don't get them I want to speak to a manager <laughs> where did Sally actually come from like what inspired would you call her a character extension of yourself like what what would you describe Sally in HR as Sally is the embodiment of every frustrating person that you meet in the workplace that specifically just doesn't see anything other than their own initial experience. So there was the time that she wore a hijab because she wanted to feel what it was like to be a Muslim woman, even though there are Muslim women that work oh at Plant Acon that she could just ask mm -hmm, them about mm -hmm. their experience. She's like, no, no, I need to wear the hijab to feel it. And where did this come from? I remember watching a Channel 4, I think it was Channel 4 documentary, where a white woman wore hijab they, they gave her a prosthetic nose they tanned her skin because they wanted her or she wanted to experience what life felt like as a Muslim like a South Asian Muslim woman you could have asked and in fact you didn't even need to ask because South Asian Muslim women are telling us all the time all the time what it's like to be visibly Muslim in our society. So if we just respected their perspective and their experiences, you wouldn't have to be cosplaying like you are right now. So that inspired that little skit. And I think the most viral one was when um, she was speaking to Moronike and she said, oh, she couldn't find, or Kathy couldn't, from finance couldn't find her to give her her payslip because she kept changing her hair. And she's like, okay, I understand. I, I understand that you're the only black person um, in your department but you have to understand her confusion she says some days you have your hair like Beyonce and other days you have your hair like Bob Marley <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was absurd when I created it I was just like I'm going out on a limb here the number of emails that I got that were like yep that happened to me yeah that happened to me I'm mistaken for the other black person in my office all the time not even in the office in the building so we're not even in the same department we're not on the same floor but you'll just call me a random name Edward Ennefel when he first started at Vogue and he was stopped by security because they were like what are you doing that's in the building that's actually very I think I'll have to like <laughs> resign <laughs> <laughs> that's so embarrassing like you're actually the boss boss yes and you're the boss you're the chief you're the chief of the chiefs you're the you're the champion lion I'm resigning right. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just too embarrassing and they're holding you at reception for what and sometimes you want to try and like stunt on people but then sometimes you want them to actually feel it yeah. and see it 
and actually let it sink in that what you what you've done is actually very silly. Yes. So. <laughs> oh God. I'm trying to think it's happened to me on two occasions where at at work there was like a town hall mm-hmm. and everyone went to the town hall room but I was I had a deadline so I stayed in my at my desk yeah and this lady started, and I had um faux locks mm-hmm. oh. this lady came she started pulling it and I, because oh. everyone was upstairs I was actually scared <laughs> Because I was like, no one's meant to be in a newsroom. So what is... So I turned around and I was like, what what are you doing? Yes. Uh, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm so sorry. I, I really liked your hair. I said, so you no. really liked it and then you just touched it. I said, you don't touch people's hair. It's really weird. And, it's, and you actually scared me. Like, I actually jumped. So you gave me a jump scare. Yeah. Like, that just was... appeared out of nowhere with a hand. Yeah. And even after that point, anytime she'll see me, she won't, <laughs> she won't look at me. She'll because be like then it becomes away. a whole thing. But it's just like, you just shouldn't have done that in the first instance. It's weird. Exactly. So, whose career would you say that you're jealous of? <sighs> Nobody's. And I know that people might come and automatically, that's the thing that they say. But genuinely, nobody's. Because everybody's getting flogged in one way or another. And before, I think maybe I would have said, oh, I love Oprah's career. And mm. that's something that I would want to try and emulate. Like that blueprint, you know, of you know her as this talk show host but she's also she was this reporter and then she's got this network and she's this super interviewer yeah and then there are other aspects I'm like but I don't want to emulate that I don't want to have to deal with all of that stuff so outside of Oprah I think I'm good like I love what so many people are doing but there's nothing in me that wants to do what they're doing I think that in fact what I'm doing is one of the best things to do what would you say that is just being a baby girl and for everyone who doesn't really know what being a baby girl is, what is being a baby girl? Just living in your truth and following wherever you're called to. When people say, oh, um, what's your bio? Describe yourself. I was like, ba- honestly, I don't want to go with polymath. I don't want to go with multi-hyphenate, which is what people tend to use when they're describing me. I would just say a baby girl because I'm going to keep switching I have the pole dance studio. I act, I direct, I now write. Um, You know, I do the social commentary. I have the podcast and um, do all the advocacy stuff that I do as well, as well as being a mom and, you know, uh, doing all of that stuff. There are so many things. I read tarot professionally, all of this stuff. So what kind of bio encapsulates all of that? (laughs) Or (laughs) Or do I use the first letter of each thing? (laughs) And then what will it now spell? So the best thing is just, you know, baby girl. But did you intend for your career to be like this? No. My path was very linear, very straightforward. I just want to be an actress. Just want to focus on acting. I'm great at acting. Let me act, Lord. And it's like, no, no, no. You have the skill, but it's not that that I need you to use those skills for. The very same skills of being able to emote, to be able to evoke emotions in other people who are paying attention to you, to be able to speak to large crowds, speak to them confidently and speak to them with conviction. All of the skills that you need, yes, as a great actress, you also need it in order to be this kind of public facing person or this entity that allows for um, society's conversations, discourse, whatever, to move forward. You need the same thing. You need charisma. And this is part of the problem. Sometimes people have the things that we need, but we don't find them charismatic. And I think you need a bit of charisma. You need a bit of pizzazz. You need a bit of spice. Yeah, you need a bit of seasoning. Otherwise, why do people... Because especially in this age where people's attention spans are so short, why should they listen to you? Why should they listen to me? There has to be something that grabs them and keeps grabbing them, keeps them coming back. 
you need it in order for there to be consistency in absorbing the message and then um, personifying it or, you know, um, putting that me- a message back out into the world and living that message. So you mean, I guess you can also tell when some people are, the pizzazz is quite fake or yes. awkward or yes. cringe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. okay. That makes sense. Who would you like to thank for your career so far? Oh, that's a massive I did one. read at the end but, of the book. But, but, but there's actually quite a lot of thank yous. Because a lot of people contributed. I always, I'm a bit wary of people who are like, I did it all myself. It's all me. No, like I'm a Don, but there were other people that, added and contributed to my Don-like demeanour and I'm so <laughs> grateful for that but primarily it would be my Egberon, which I write I dedicate the book yeah. to them at the very beginning um, we believe that there, we have a spiritual family that don't come to the physical realm that remember our assignments for us and they do their best to remind us of what that assignment is, even if we're off gallivanting, doing other things. So at the beginning of the book, I say thank you to them for reminding me. And that's written in Yoruba? Yes. Well, their Nigeria. name, yeah, their, their, their name, Egwero, that's in my my oh, my heavenly family. Okay. Yeah. okay. So that's written in Yoruba. And then just thank you for reminding me. If it were to be a physical person, I'd say I'd give it to my mum. I feel like loads of people give it to their mums, but we haven't had, it hasn't been like a smooth relationship but we've grown together. And I think she's a testament to the fact that sometimes we birth our own healing. You know, shout out to me. But no. <laughs> Can you talk a bit more about that? Birthing your own healing. Yeah, birthing your own healing in the sense that so many Nigerian women, I speak to Nigerian women specifically, um, and the ways our cultures, our traditions sometimes can be very harsh on women can be very harsh on women. Not to say that men don't have their things, but it can be very harsh on women. And I know that mothers experience that. And so when they have their children, that harshness, whether they mean to or not, can come through in the way that they parent. So being a daughter that went out there into the world to garner as much healing or as many healing modalities as possible to bring back home, to give to everybody else around me, she wholeheartedly embraced that. Initially, she'd be like, Kelechi, you have come again. You have come again, Kelechi. <laughs> What's this one? Tarot? Tarot? So I just pull in cards. <laughs> <laughs> so, but she's cool with it. I said, I'm going to be a personal trainer. Ah, oh, Kelishi, you have finished me. You have finished me. Your age mates, they are studying law. They are doing medicine. You, you want to go and do personal training? Cool. She went along with it, but she, she, had to, she had to strap in for the ride. And here we are now. And now she's boasting to her friends. Like, look what my daughter does. Like, look at this, look at that. So... I see how she's changed as a result of the things that I went out into the world to get for us. And so I'll dedicate it to her because I know that there are some parents, some mothers that never want to let go of what they know. They don't want to know anything different. And I think that that sometimes can stunt the kind of relationship, the kind of intimacy, closeness that they can have with their children because they're not willing to see a world different to the one that they grew up in. So, yeah, I'd say my mum. So we spoke about it a little bit earlier, but what would you say makes a good short story? Because I think they're actually quite hard to do. Yes, Ben Okri spoke about this at um, an award ceremony that I went to last year. And he said that we need to rate short stories more. They're not an unfinished novel or an unfinished idea. They're entire worlds in this kind of vignette that you get. And it takes a lot of skill to give people just enough that they feel satiated, but you do want them to be like... "Ah." 
what happens that what happens after but not too much where it's just like girl that was a very odd place to end that story <laughs> and I did have that in certain regards when I was writing it as well where my editor Sarita would be like can you go back and, <laughs> and, and, and go and add more go and flesh that thing out where you've ended it makes like no sense go and add more uh, and so I'd gone back and added some things in so it just didn't feel like cliffhanger after cliffhanger some stories even though it's ending there you're happy you're, you're content with that's fine yeah. cool Cool. Yeah, because you mentioned that with the watchers that people asked for a novel. Yeah, they asked and for I can a novel. see why people want a novel. But what made you feel confident and say, "No, this is the story, and it's done here"? Because it's Shinonso and Indidi's life. If you want a novel, what do you want the novel of? Because they, we'd have to explore different times. We we wouldn't stay just in this time. You want us to go into every time. We can do that, but I think that we would come to the same conclusion that their love transcends space and time. So we covered that already. So what else are we going to do? You know. And um, what would you say is your writing routine? I get my snacks, and yes, what do I, you have for snacks? So there's this thing. When I was at university, I was broke. <laughs> so I would go to, so I went to university in Liverpool and I would go to, I think it was the Aldi, buy my dorms and I'd buy this 33p um, Maryland cookies, the white chocolate ones, and I'd get the juice concentrate because I didn't have money for like the full, full press juice <laughs> and a carton of that. And that I would just be eating that while I'm writing out my coursework and doing all of that. So till now, I'll have some form of cookies and a juice, but I've come up in the world. So, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. I, can have, so I can have press juice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but I dilute it with water because of the acidity on my teeth. But, you know, we learn. Um, so I have that to decide. I pray, in whether it's sage or palo santo, cleared the area, cleared the air. Yeah, focus on that prayer and then I just start typing. But usually I write a lot of the stories already in my mind. So I don't type just, you know, I don't really get writer's block because before I start writing the story, I already know what the story is, like the framework of it in my head. So it's just a case of like going to the next page and the next page and the next page. So even though I've got a novel to write, I'm not scared about writing the novel. Have you writing it yet? Yeah, yeah. So... Can you share anything or it's too soon? Um, yeah, maybe too soon because I might just go and change some some things. Yeah. But I'm excited about it. Ooh. Like I'm excited. AI is going to be in there one way or another. Okay, so a lot of sci-fi still. Yes, but sci-fi moving further, <laughs> moving further into okay. the things, bringing certain things in that I feel like we need to um, that we need to speak about the disappearances of black children, for instance. I really want to hone in on that so there'll be that at the forefront while all the spiritual technological hoo-hahs are happening as well yeah because even in this um, short story collection there's a lot of nods like Yoruba I w I'm not sure what to call it is it Yoruba traditions or history what would you yes, call it um, Yoruba cosmology so Yoruba okay. spirituality yeah okay. yeah yeah and trying to honour that immortalise that they're immortal anyway but to have that in a story form that honours them I think is important because how it's presented to, to us sometimes in Nollywood is like, oh, look, they're illiterate, their teeth are missing and black and they're wearing red and they're just walking around in the darkness. And it's like, it's really not that. It's such a beautiful, beautiful practice. So you want to teach that. Like, not just have it so we're looking on, like, Game of Thrones. I think people complained all the time, like, oh, we don't see black people. Black people aren't really doing this, doing that. Yeah, but we can have our own worlds where we are doing these things and we are central to it. Let's do that. Why science fiction? 
I mean, the moment I knew The Watchers was the thing, I just thought <laughs> that's where we're going. <laughs> and one of my favourite book of all time is uh, Wild Seed by Octavia Butler. Love that. Knowing that Octavia Butler existed as a black woman who wrote science fiction. And again, the themes of the book, it's like it's a nod to her and that specific book, Wild Seed. She's got Kindred. She's got so many other um, books in that sort of like world. But I read Wild Seed and my world changed. My life changed. I said, wow, if you can write something that spans over centuries and it's this battle between these two spirits... I'm, I want in. And so there's a character that she has in there, the woman called Anyanwu, and I want to play her. And I heard that D Viola Davis and her husband, Julius, they bought the rights to Wild Seed to make it into something. Ooh. I I begged everybody. <laughs> I said, you, I looked at your followers list. Viola Davis follows you. Go and tell her that she cannot cast anybody to play this role but me. I will come and prostrate outside <laughs> her house. Like, let her know that. I'm not going anywhere. And if you cast somebody, they'll fall down. <laughs> Just, let's all mind ourselves. <laughs> oh, so is it coming out? I don't know what they're doing oh. with it. I don't know if it's in development. I don't know who's, I, I think I know, I think they said something about who the writer will be that will help develop it into a script but I haven't heard too much else about it I'll say that and they'll announce these are the cast that <laughs> hate mail I've never sent it in my life but I will start sending it immediately I'm not sure if you actually finished mm. explaining what your writing routine is I'll ask you something else yeah but so writing routine is literally that so get my juice get my cookies um, um, clear out the air and then just start channeling whatever it is that has been kind of ruminating in my mind just start typing it out after praying just start typing out whatever it is because I'll figure it out later on you know I'm not too precious about it write it let my editor read it. She sends her feedback. I feel like she hates me. And then <laughs> I get past the feelings and then take into account what's been said and see what I want to tweak and what I want to um, kind of, yeah, build up on. But honestly, for me, it's just a spiritual practice. You don't allow it to become like a, a burden? No, almost? it can't be a burden. It can't be a chore. Like, it's really not that deep. I know that for other people it is. Like, there's a whole thing. Me, I'll just sit there. And if and what's funny is that because it's such a spiritual practice, whenever I would go to write because I'm like, oh, the deadline is this date, I'm going to go and sit down and write, I would instantly feel sleepy. Wasn't sleepy before, was so fine. I had it a lot with Broom. Broom, okay. I really wanted to push ahead and write it. And I wanted to write the character in a particular way. I wanted to push. And every time I'd go to write, I would get very sleepy. And then Elizabeth died. If she hadn't, I wouldn't have had it to put in broom. Mm, so then so I true. started to understand that just let your body knows what it's doing. Like let the process happen. Don't force it. Because if I let the process be what it is, where I'm trying to write, oh, let me try and get 1,000 words in this and that. If I just leave it alone, I can probably get 4,000 words, 5,000 words in in one day because everything is flowing at the same time rather than trying to force it out. I guess also sometimes with writers, when you like, learn about other writers you start to think you have to write like how yeah, they write and yeah. then I guess that puts the pressure on you to write in a certain way yeah how would you say that you found your writing voice because I feel like your your speaking voice you found it mm. how is it finding your writing voice I, st I still think I'm figuring it out but I noticed that I'm always writing and I'm separate to the object or the subject. I'm separate to it. So I'm commenting on it. So I'm still using a sense of commentary for all of the stories. So it'll be nice at some point, I guess, to uh, to try what it's like to write the characters from a first person perspective. So I I wonder why I haven't 
tried that yet or why I haven't yeah, gone down that route. Everyone, I'm talking about them. I guess it's what you said earlier that you really wanted this book to almost present concepts to people. Yeah. Yes. So it, it makes it makes sense why you would write it in that way. Yeah. There's also some sex scenes <laughs> in the book. <laughs> and I, I don't know, like, with sex scenes in books, some people go a bit overboard, yes. I think. Yeah. Some people just get it right, or some people be like, oh, okay. What was that? <laughs> yeah, so, like, when you were writing sex scenes, did you find it awkward? Like, like, how did you get into that? I found it awkward at certain points only to gauge how much to put in. Because okay. I know that people can be coy. <laughs> and if I'm saying I'm writing this for black women, even when black women have come to my studio to do pole dance classes or private classes with their friends, you know, initially they're a bit shy. There are some that are not shy. They'll come right in and they're ready to swing around a pole. That's fine. But there are people who are shy. When I was teaching my twerk workshops all around the place, there'd be people who were like, oh, I don't know, just... <laughs> Just <laughs> shake your bum, Darren. What's this nonsense? Um, but I understand why, because if we're hypersexualized in society, we try as much as possible not to then sexualize ourselves. So people are kind of shook in that way. So I didn't want to put too much where they're like, oh, got to close it. It's, it's too much. Just enough. Just sprinkle. Sp- sprinkle. Sprinkle, sprinkle. But how, from a writing perspective, do you actually craft those type of scenes? You go from memory. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm not that creative I was like hmm (laughs) okay I wasn't expecting that dear diary (laughs) 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 okay okay that makes sense write what you know that's what they told you write what you know it's true (laughs) oh my gosh okay (laughs) please move on like what (laughs) huh (laughs) Um, you mentioned that the school run came to you just before you were going to Nigeria early in the morning yes when you got that and because you had a flight did you like voice record it to yourself did you type it down quickly how did you remember it I went to the bathroom at some 248 148 yeah went to the bathroom and then I was like (laughs) I had no concept of it before it was not anything that was on my mind at all and then it just came to me. And so I rushed back into the bedroom, got my um, laptop out, and I just started typing, typing, typing until about five. Oh, you wrote it? Then. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Five, when I, um, five, then I had to get ready, get my son ready, get everything ready to uh, go to Nigeria. So that was February 2021. So yeah, I had to um, get over there. Or is it 2022? Maybe 2022. So yeah, I had to uh, get ready for Nigeria. So left it so then when we now got settled at the airport checked in everything was sat there for a few hours because always I like to get to the airport early early. yes I don't want no drama (laughs) so sat there nothing to do got the laptop back out and continued writing it so by the time I got on the flight I'd finished it wow (laughs) but again this what I mean when it's clear you don't have to really do anything you just type type it out of course um, when your editor reads it they're like what's this and why is this because like you said I'm essentially writing it as if it's notes to a certain degree right and so they'll remind you like okay could you expand on this and what's happening here what's she feeling here what's happening to Alicia here here so all of those things help you to then flesh it out even more but if we say that I don't know 6,000 words were already written of it then when they asked me to add the extra bits then it filled out the rest of it yeah do you write a particular time then or is this still when you feel I prefer to write at night practically my son will be asleep but also energetically I think better at night so in that hour <laughs> yes yes night hour. okay okay would you say there's any insecurities about that you have towards your writing 
Probably punctuation. Okay. <laughs> because when they send it back <laughs> and they're putting all the punctuation here and they're taking out the dot, dot, dot that you put there and just remember, they're like, girl, did you go to school? <laughs> but now I just don't care. I'm like, you get what I meant. And if you don't, you'll ask me what I meant and I'll clarify and then we'll add all of that in. Probably that's, I would say that that's the only thing. Punctuation. Audiobooks though. Ha! I did not know that I was pronouncing so many words differently. When you grow up with a Nigerian mum, you just pronounce things a particular way until you're reading an audiobook and someone just goes, the engineer just goes, um, um, sorry, just, uh, I think that's um, envelope. <laughs> <laughs> or enveloped. Enveloped is one, because I said enveloped. And they were like, no, it's enveloped. What? I was just going to, let me just get up this website. It's enveloped. What? Enveloped. No, I don't believe that. Right. I thought, so it's not envelopes. Even, I would say swallow. Like I swallowed my food and it's a swallow. Okay, I, I say swallow. I say swallow. See? Okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. You're, you're in there. <laughs> sorry. I, I am not with you. <laughs> but enveloped? I say enveloped. I say enveloped, but they were like, it's um, enveloped. It reminds me of when I was doing my driving lessons mm-hmm. and I said to my um, instructor, oh, I'm going to trafficate. <laughs> and he, he actually said pull up. And he's Jamaican, man. He's like, pull up. <laughs> he pulled up. He pulled up. And he was like, what did you say? I said, I just said I traffic it. <laughs> and then he was like, it's indicate. I was like... But you understood what I meant. Yeah. And like, what's wrong with saying traffic game? <laughs> what's wrong with saying traffic game? Because <laughs> that's what my parents so, said. <laughs> and I went home to my parents saying, you've actually disgraced me. All this time, I thought traffic was a word. And it's not. <laughs> But it should be. New words are added all the time. Trafficate. I'm just going to trafficate. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense. But he was so sure. He made me pull up. Like he said, park, park. Park the car right now. So there's six stems that oh. well, they really be like, creating their own world, yeah. world words that we just adopt and use into our everyday vocabulary. But that's what that's our superpower though. And I think that that's why we have such a way, a colourful, beautiful way with words because they've given us that. Otherwise, I feel like the English language would be so dry. But some of the things we add to it, like I can't say embarrassed anymore. I prefer embarrassed. <laughs> Zed. Yes. Are you not embarrassed? <laughs> Why are you causing such embarrassment? It just hits different because yeah. there's embarrassment. Some people feel embarrassment time to time, but embarrassment. It's a different I never, meaning. I never want to feel it. I never want to feel embarrassment. <laughs> embarrassed, I can feel embarrassed. I never want to feel that, my G. <laughs> I get what you mean. It's two different levels. Yes. Out of the collection, there's eight stories. Eight stories, yeah. What would you say is your favourite? Blue. Why? Because Blue is my darling. Blue is actually slightly dedicated to my therapist. I remember we were doing a session, having a session on Zoom, and she was I was talking to her about something. And I just, as I was talking to her, I remember coming out of myself and looking at the conversation and thinking, where do you put all the grief that people give you? Of course, I know that they have their supervision sessions and they go and offload onto somebody else. Then where does that person take it, you know? And so... And then I thought about it in a wider context of whenever anything happens, people go, black women will fix it. When people are voting wildly in America or wherever the case may be, black women will fix it. But you shouldn't have voted that way, you know? So this expectation that black women can absorb the collective grief is something that I wanted to play around with. So we see how... Um, having to deal with the grief of others is kind of limiting Ibi from having close relationships with the people that she wants to explore intimacy with. She's got this beautiful house, but nobody gets to visit it because she can't share what she keeps there. Her house 
is a representation of so many of us in our internal worlds where we don't really let people visit there because it's just like, I don't even know if you'll like what you see. So I'm just going to keep this over here, but I can perform, I can be high functioning. I can perform the very, you know, um, well put together, beautiful woman that's, you know, well-spoken and does all of these things, but you keep a whole world away. So I, that's why I thought that it, that is my gift to my therapist, but also my gift to black women in a really tender way. Like you also deserve to have your world too and to share it with people sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Because even like people were talking about how they are at work and like not bring your full self to, to work. work yeah. It reminds you of that as well, how you're constantly keeping elements of yourself aware to yourself. Yeah. And then who, where, where do you share all of you? And it was also to pay homage to Damilola Taylor. So there's a scene there where that's how she discovers that she has her powers when something happens. And I like to believe that sometimes our stories can travel through, because the past and the present and the future are happening all at the same time. And I hope that there's that story particularly can travel over to him, that there was somebody that could hold him in his moment of pain because how he died, it still haunts me. How he was murdered still haunts me. And it's something that as they're regenerating and gentrifying Peckham, like I never want him to be lost. So it was important for me to have a story where he was there and all of this was happening. So it's paying homage to all of the things that matter to me in that way. I love that. What would you say is the best and hardest thing about being a black writer? I think the best thing about being a black writer is being able to write from what you know that many other people might not know. That there's so much breadth of um, and depth of culture to call on and to call upon in t in for your writing that I really really enjoy. There were some things that I put in there that I knew that other black that I knew that black readers would get, but then the publishers would be like, "Yeah, but it has to be accessible to everybody." How do you deal with that? There has to be a balance. There's give and take. There are some things that I will take out because if you're saying it's too obscure for the, for people to understand, I'll remove it. But at the same time, I'm not necessarily writing for everybody. So everybody's not going to get it. You know, and sometimes if they don't get something, isn't there Urban Dictionary or them things there? They can go, <laughs> they can, yeah, they can go and look something up. They can go and find it out. But yeah, there has to be that balance because I do want for as many people to be able to delve into that world as much as possible. But I need to keep it authentic. So there are certain manners of phrasing things that needs to remain. Otherwise, the people I'm writing it for will read it and it'll feel sanitized and they won't connect with it and then so essentially you didn't get anything. yeah essentially I failed right and I don't I wouldn't want that so yeah I would say that that's the best thing the worst thing the lack of support the lack of support I think in terms of the publishing world as a whole there are fantastic books that have been written by black writers that we do not know about because the publishers, whether it's publicity teams or whatever, have absolutely flopped it because they don't know how to. They're not equipped enough to um, market the book to audiences outside of black audiences. So people are getting comfortable now going, oh, you've got a black book. You've got a black book. You've got a book out and you're a black writer. Go on to all of these black podcasts. No, forget about the black podcast because I've got those on lock. Give me the white, white led podcasts. I want to go there. Why not there? You know, and so it's still working in a very segregated way. And I it just it's really sad when you hear of a fantastic book and you're like, I hardly I didn't even know that this came out. Why? Who did that? 
what what's the problem so i just feel like black writers deserve more more budget needs to be put um behind their rollouts more budget needs to be put behind um all the publicity things that they do and also more money needs to be put behind um mentorship not necessarily mentorship programs no i'm not going to call it that because i don't like the way that we're infantilized in any regard where they're like oh we're going to support you with a men i don't there, there's nobody that you can give me that i need to learn from i just want money <laughs> you know like so just give us grants give us so that's i think that's that's what i mean more opportunities for grants that people can go away and write and do their work they don't need to be mentored by anybody they don't want to write like that person who's going to stifle them just give us the money and we'll go half the problems 80% of the problems, 95% of the problems can be solved by just giving us money. So how have you found your, like, because would you say you already started your publicity phase now? I think you have. Yeah. How would, you say, how would you say it's been? It's been all right. I think that you do have to kind of, it's a, it's a team that they are enthusiastic about doing things. It's just you have to direct sometimes where you think that the energy should go. Um, and generally, frankly speaking, there are aspects that I'm just like, we could do better there. We could push that more. We would need more funding there. But I think that this is just a conversation across publishers as a whole. The publishing industry just needs to do better by black writers. And I'm lucky and blessed to have a team that is, you know, doing their darn best. So the last section is called The Advice You Give. Okay. And it's basically where I ask guests to share the advice that they'll give to other black writers who mm -hmm. even want to do something very similar to you or just trying to figure things out for themselves. Yes. So what advice would you give them? I would say to a black writer, when you feel uncomfortable about writing the thing, it's probably the thing that you should write. Just write it. What's the worst that could happen? You know, it's sometimes because of the way that we are conditioned, the very thing, the very truth that we need to speak in order to liberate ourselves is the thing that we run away from. Because how will people take it? Who cares how they'll take it? They can take it or they can leave it. But you, you will be free. And that's what matters. Is there any example that you've had where you've had to write something where you felt a bit uh, uncomfortable with, but then after you've written and it's been published, you're like, okay. Not really, but I'm yet. Yeah, I think that probably, for instance, in some of the stories, like when I wanted to incorporate certain things and certain ideas or comments, especially in Broom, because Broom is set on a plantation. It's quite a touchy one. Yes. And people will be in their feelings about that. Like, well, I had my wedding on a plant at a plantation. Like, why, why are you doing this and doing that? So I had to know what I wanted to say about people who would do such a thing and how I would phrase that. So it's not necessarily me like beating somebody over the head with my opinion, but showing that, no, no, this is why it's a problem. This is why we need to do better. And I think I managed to execute it well, but I very much felt like it's a story that needed to be written. Wow. It's no secret Kalechi has taken the time to build a strong relationship with herself. It's what has allowed her to be so self-aware and truly enjoy the creative writing process. Her debut book, Edge of Here, will be out on September 14th, but you can pre-order it now. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this episode. If you've enjoyed it, share it with at least one Black writer that you know and let me know what you think using the hashtag BlackProsePodcast. Follow us on social media too at BlackProsePod 
I really appreciate you guys. Take care. Bye. Don't forget that Black Pros is going to be on stage at the London Podcast Festival with Joyfrey Coombson on the 15th of September. Tickets are available now. All the information will be in the description and I hope to see you there. Hi, my name is Kay Adams and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.